This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome back to episode 26 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back again this week with another exciting show. I'm here in our virtual studio with my co-host, Steve Nassar. What's going on, Steve-O? Hey, Tucker. It is good to be back on the show. We've got the Best of Masters segment with our buddy Joe Fastolo with us. Hey, guys. I'm very excited to hit it. Joe is back. And last week, uh, or last time we had a guest, you were sick. This week, I'm sick, so uh, I'll try not to sound too terrible here on the microphone, but uh, we've got Joe to fill the uh, dead air and not so much me this week, so thanks, Joe, for being here, helping out. You betcha. Happy (laughs) to be here. So we've got some great topics to talk about this week. Masters has been full of a a lot of pretty lively chatter over the last few weeks. Some of these topics look to be more hot button than normal, I guess, would be a good way to characterize it. So we've got a number to choose from. Steve, why don't you kick off the first one that we're going to talk about this week, and then we can uh, roll to Joe and see what he's got to say. Yeah, so this one was posted a couple weeks ago, and I, I actually didn't even comment on this one. I was pretty busy, but I towards the end of the day, I think it was a Friday. I don't know if that's the day it was posted. It may have been. I started reading this, and I saw all the comments on it, and then I read the article. and I was a little sick to my stomach when I read this one. Here's what it was. It says, it was a lawsuit in the Oregonian. This was an article in the Oregonian that was posted here. Now, the agent that posted it, she didn't really claim an opinion. She just said, I I was just sent this article. I'm curious what everyone's opinions are. And then the threads began. Here's kind of the gist of the lawsuit, as I could tell. A few brokers from a Hollywood office, I won't even say the company name, were accused of elder abuse. One of them in particular, who seems to be related to the principal broker, and a couple of these names are familiar to me, she was accused, and as you read the article, you just get the sense that this reporter, and I kind of feel like saying her name, Amy Green with the Oregonian, (laughs) you feel like she just has it in for these people, and And I'll come to what culminated to me as the epicenter of that, of where that was just readily obvious. She basically starts the story. And again, I'm not defending these brokers. There could have been very well something done that shouldn't have been done. But basically, this broker, as we all do, comes across a potential seller and is kind of schmoozing her, whining and dining her, being friendly with her. It talks about she would drop by with flowers and pie, and it says they developed a relationship, a friendship where she would share details with her about her life and what's going on. I don't think any of us would say that is inappropriate. I mean, we all, to some extent, are a big part of the lives of our clients. As she's progressing, it states that she puts high pressure on this 82-year-old woman to sell, and she had been in her house for 47 years. And I'm going to give a synopsis of the article, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. But she then says that, She finally had a stack of papers, got her to sign those. There's several inconsistencies in this. It almost sounds like the seller signed first, then the buyer. It says in the article that the deal was double-ended, even though the comments in the thread quickly said otherwise. And this is where kind of you start to sense some of the opinions of the author here for the Oregonian. She says that she took a commission of twenty-one to twenty-six thousand, which would be the case if it was double-ended. 
This is where I think the article just took a terrible turn for the worst, which even if this person was, and by this person I mean the broker was guilty, I just feel this was a low blow and uncalled for. She starts talking about public records with her having financial troubles in 2009. And mind you guys, in 2009, her financial problems were $1,465 in a collection, okay? If that's the worst thing that anybody went through in 2009 during the darkest days of the recession, then I think this broker was doing pretty good. Um, (laughs) I would agree there. There was a little bit more of the same where basically this reporter just was kind of being, to quote Joe Fistolo, and I, I hate to do this, but the judge, jury, and executioner. And what's sickening about this to me is I highly doubt there will be a retraction or a change in this if all of a sudden down the road, the kids jump in, they're like, no, she needed to sell the house and she got a fair amount and we're good and let's drop the lawsuit. That's not how these things go. And from this day forward, when you Google this broker's name or even her principal brokers, this article is going to come up high on this SEO. And it's just, it's sickening to me that a reporter would really, I think to me, that's the story here is that these reporters have so much power and, and, you know, power in the wrong hands can be really, really damaging. Joe, what do you think about it? Well, gosh, I agree with you so much. I don't have that much to add. It's the very same (laughs) talking points. You know, the cliche of good deeds go unnoticed, but bad news spreads like wildfire. And I thought it was very irresponsible of this author to write an article as she did when there's no decision whatsoever, starting with, you know, the title of lawsuit where real estate agent tricked 82 year old woman into signing off on her home. And So my two comments are one pertaining to this article. It was obviously written. You don't have to go very far and beyond the title. You can go to the, you know, first or second paragraph and she's already throwing darts at this listing agent. And this has not been decided yet. And there's a lot of inconsistencies in the article as well. So I thought it was irresponsible reporting and it could be damaging, just like you said. If someone tries to find this broker in the future, I mean, anytime we're in front of potential clients, what do they do? Well, they try and Google us and dig up information and learn a little bit about us. This is probably going to be near the top, that this person was involved in some kind of fraud. Even though there's been no decision yet, that article is going to be there and it's going to be greatly damaging. Beyond the poorly written article... I have no idea what happened. It sounded like she honestly was a friend of this gal and brought her flowers and dropped by and did nice things. And, you know, sometimes elderly change their mind. Sometimes the children get involved and they think, gosh, you know, mom could have sold her house for 200,000 more because this is in the hottest Alberta arts district. You know, you involve kids and other people, it can go sideways and it's an easy out to say, hey, you know, she's old and didn't remember. So more importantly, being a realtor and being an advisor and owner of a company, it's easier to keep people from getting in trouble than getting them out of trouble. So if you were in front of an elderly person or couple that want to do anything regarding real estate, selling or purchasing, the first thing I do is ask, do they have any children, hopefully even in the area, that we can bring into this. So it's eyes wide open for everyone. 
you know, if there's some inconsistencies in the way they're talking to you and they seem forgetful, you might want to have them checked out for competency. And we had a discussion about that and we're not completely clear how that happens. But if a doctor spoke with her and claimed that she was competent, you can also have limited power of attorney for selling the home. You could have a personal representative. There's lots of things you can do to achieve the same goal if this person isn't competent. It's someone else who can get her authority through proxy. And just recently, I sold a townhome where the guy was a little bit forgetful, nowhere near full dementia. But just as a checkpoint, the title rep came to the house, signed both the husband and wife at the house, and asked, do you know why we're here? And do you know what we're doing? And where are you moving to? And he's like, well, we're selling the house, and we're, we're moving to Arizona. And Is that how he said it, Joe? <laughs> I love it. Just like that. Yeah, that's, that's my best uh, Henry Fonda. So, And she said, do you have any family in Arizona? And he said, yes, my daughter. And he answered like 10 or 15 questions that were very lucid and very clear. But that's how you go and protect yourself because if you don't have witnesses and you don't have those checkpoints, any moment throughout the transaction, someone can throw up their hands and say, I don't remember things and I'm incompetent and dementia and it can completely derail. So protect yourself in all cases. Yeah, I think those are good points for sure, both of you. The one thing, you know, I kind of wanted to dig into this a little bit more and maybe Steve and Joe, you can tell me what you think. But, you know, I'm looking at the article here. Was the home actually listed on the RMLS? Was that something that was ever stated? A broker said that this agent who befriended this gal was the listing agent, but somebody else represented the buyer. So an inconsistency in commissions that this gal earned wouldn't be correct because she didn't double-end it, and that's what she sort of portrayed in the in okay. the article. So the, the reality of the situation is it was listed on the open market. So the I, idea... That part I'm not sure. I not don't sure. know, Joe, definitively if I know that. What may have happened was a deal was quietly put together, but then they put it on the MLS so they could get credit for gotcha. the deal. Okay. So, okay. Sold but not listed. But there was another broker, and that's an inconsistency, and it's a big one. That's a big one. I mean, there was multiple inconsistencies. Let me run through a few, and and kudos to the Masters Group for being on this. I mean, as I read the article, before I even had a chance myself to identify all the inconsistencies, I was reading them everywhere, and I loved that about this group. She said it was double-ended, and she even threw out the commission potential amount, and clearly that isn't correct because it wasn't double-ended, according to RMLS. She said that the elderly lady had eyesight problems, but then talked about how she needed her carport, which people were like, why does she need a carport if she's having really bad vision problems? There was a few other things. Well, I'm reading them. The selling agent was not the listing agent per the RMLS listing info. I mean, suffice to say, it was riddled with inconsistencies, but my problem is when there's a lawsuit with no decision, this reporter was ready to be judge, jury, and executioner with this article. And I think that's irresponsible reporting. And I was very proud, I should say, of the Masters in Real Estate group, because when people rant, people love to jump on and rant with them. And, you know, misery loves company. I don't know why I'm a cliche uh, pinball machine spitting them out, but we didn't 
we read the article and it's like, gosh, this author has it out for this agent and is making huge leaps of assumptions and guesses and wrote a very damaging article with no basis. So we were not quick to jump on the the bandwagon. Matter of fact, Masters went and picked it apart and presented the facts, talked about all the inconsistencies, talked about how irresponsible it was. I was really, really happy to see that. I remember the other one. And it made it out as if the seller wrote the offer, the older lady wrote the offer, and then it was presented to the buyer for them to accept, which isn't really how a transaction typically works. So it almost felt like beyond this reporter having it out for this broker, it almost seemed like she was a little ignorant to real estate and some of the goings on. And I mean, it would be really easy to fact check. Did she double in this? And it seems like she should have. Totally agree with you, Joe. I think when you get in an elderly client like this, and especially when they've lived in the house this long, I mean, this is a lady that had raised her kids in this house 47 years. I mean, that's nothing to, to sneeze at. I think some due diligence comes up like, hey, you know, where are your kids at? Are they aware of this? Do you mind if I give them a quick call? Is one of them better than the other for me to call? And maybe even, you know, cover yourself even further. Call the kids, one of the kids at least, right? And have a conversation just so you know, I'm I'm working with your mom. I'm getting ready to list her house. I'm excited to help her. She's a wonderful lady. Get an email address, shoot them an email, get them to reply. Yeah, thanks for your help. Anything like that to substantiate what you have going on. Another thing that I think the broker could have done better. And again, none of us know all the facts, so we're not judging them. But it did say in the article that they reached out to the broker for comment and they didn't make a comment. Now, the REMAX attorney did, and perhaps that was why. But in a case like this, I think an attorney commenting is key. I don't know if they have their own individual comment that could be made. Maybe that Remax should have got a little bit more specific with some of this. I don't know. That part, I think, could have been a little bit better. You know, they probably felt the burn there, Steve. I mean, when when a reporter's calling and they're writing one type of article, you could tell them whatever you want, right? But what are they going to print? It's probably true. They're going to print it and they're going to support what they're writing more than likely. Yeah. I read that in the thread. I think one of the people said, well, this article is one-sided and somebody made a good point. They said, well, they did reach out to him for comment. They didn't give a comment. So I don't know if that would have made a difference or not. But the last thing I was going to say on this subject is just, again, shame on the Oregonian. You know, they used to have a stranglehold on Portland News. And I think we all know what changed that. The internet coming along and all of a sudden, all these different other news agencies, including, you know, the TV news, being able to have websites that compete with them, having the TV news and the the demise of the traditional paper product. It makes me wonder if the Oregonian just in their desperation to keep on the edge isn't dramatizing some of these articles and doing what they think readers want. I don't know, but it's a bad, bad deal. I think it just reeks of a bad way to go about this. I think our listeners and I think the master's group should reach out to the Oregonian. I don't know if you reach out to this actual reporter, even though I will tell you in the article, if you click on the article right there at the top next to her name and picture, it says email the author. And I clicked on that and it gives you an email address. Just, you know, a well-written email saying, here's a few problems I have with this. You know, the financial problems of 2009, why did they come into play here? That is just, that was just a low blow as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that's just absurd. I mean, especially, we're not talking about like a $100,000 bankruptcy here. We're talking about $1,465 and then a Nordstrom's credit card. I mean, 
Come on, people. Really? That's just to say that she wasn't fighting the collection, right? I mean, everyone's had somebody that throws you a bill and says, hey, you owe me this. And you go, no, I don't. I didn't actually want that. I didn't sign up for that. And so you fight the collection. Who's to say that wasn't the case here? I don't know. I'm just speculating. But to throw this in the article to try to demonize this broker is just sickening to me. Yeah. And I think one thing that maybe, and I don't know what happened or didn't happen, but you know, we buy virtually all of our projects directly from the homeowner. There is an agent's in between. And a lot of times we're buying from elderly people, people that have lived in an area for a long time. The home has never been updated. Maybe it's a bigger piece of property that, you know, is best suited for redevelopment. And so, you know, what we do is if we recognize that the person that we're buying it from is elderly, most of the time their kids are involved to some extent because the vast majority of the time once we're done with the project, the kids want to see the house they grew up in after we've totally revamped it or redone it. And so it does help to reach out and definitely feel, okay, are you going to have opposition? Are there kids that have an un- unrealistic vision of what the home is worth and they're counting on that for their inheritance? And so this lawsuit is basically because they didn't get as much inheritance as they were hoping for because mom sold their house for less. Or, you know, the other side of it, too, is where are you going to go, lady, right? You you know, as a broker, as an agent, I'm sure you guys are dealing with this all the time. If you sell a house right now, you have to buy a house or you have to move into assisted living. So that should have been a pretty major talking point before selling the houses. Where are you going to go and make sure that's all worked out? And as long as that's worked out, to me, that says that you gave it enough thought, right? You gave it enough thought to actually sell your house. So, Who's to say that conversation did or didn't get had? I don't know, but that would seem to me like the proof's in the pudding. If she thought about it, she made arrangements to move to some, you know, older folks living facility or something like that. You know, that takes an application, that takes meetings, that takes phone calls, that takes a lot of thought and preparation. So if she did that, I don't think this suit has any merit personally, but that's just my opinion. Great point, Tucker. And we don't know. We truthfully don't know. I'm sure somebody does, and I'm sure they're working through it. It'll be interesting if we ever find out what really happened here, but great, great points. I agree. The more that seller does in that process to engage themselves with it, the more you know you can believe that they knew what they were doing. Maybe I should have gone to law school, right? For uh, realtor defense, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but So I think that's a pretty good topic. I think we hit all the major points, unless you've got anything else you want to add before we jump to the next next topic here, Steve or Joe. Yeah, you got one thing, and it says the broker failed to comment, said no comment. And if the questions were anything like her article ended up coming out. I imagine the questions were something like, so how long have you been taking advantage of old people? Uh, you know, <laughs> Things like that. No comment is a fabulous way to deal with some reporters. I've been misquoted a million times, and anything you say will be misquoted and held against you. And yeah, and in her defense, I, I think case. you're absolutely right. I actually had the Oregonian call me a couple of years ago about some of the direct mail marketing that we do. And it wasn't at all deceitful or anything bad, but I knew what the spin was going to be. The spin was going to be taken however they want it. If the person writing the article had any knowledge of direct response marketing, they would have said, wow, that's really clever and cool. Not, you know, you're trying to take advantage of people or this and that. And so, yeah, they have their spin going into the call. And that was the point I made before. And so sometimes no comment is the best comment. That could be true. Yep. Let's transition here, Steve. What's the next topic that we're going to dive into here? So the next one that had a lot of reaction here on the Masters group, it was posted on (laughs) – and actually the data was posted is very relevant to this one. It was posted on February 12th, and it was very short and sweet. It says, what is your opinion about a house that listed yesterday, so listed on February 11th, and says – 
They will review offers on February 29th. Is this a bit extreme of a waiting period? Joe, let's let you run with that one. Absolutely. You know, there's kind of a sweet spot of what you need to do when you list a home. You want to consider all offers, but you want to make sure that people have ample time to get their buyers there. So what I like to do typically is list a property, you know, Friday morning, Friday afternoon. We carry it through a weekend and then Tuesday after the broker's open, we're ready to make a decision on Tuesday night or Wednesday night. Anything beyond that period of time is excessive. However, if I list a house at 10 on Friday in RMLS and get an offer at noon, I really don't want to accept that thing by 2 o'clock because you could be leaving money or terms on the table. So I think the sweet spot is... Friday, carry it through a weekend, have a broker's open tour. Tuesday, middle of the week, people aren't gone for a long weekend. They can see it, send their buyers through. Everyone throws their hat in the ring, and then you make your best educated decision from there. In this case, listing a home on the 11th and saying we're reviewing all offers on the 29th, I mean, if I were a buyer, I'd be pissed off and say, forget it. I'm not going to be part of your circus. You know, deal with <laughs> deal with people who are willing to do that, but I'm not. And it's a tough enough market already. Buyers who are looking close in on either side of the river, but anything close in, especially now on the east side, southeast, northeast, there's kind of a talk around the office. You know, you get a cup of coffee. Hey, how many offers has your people in southeast written? Oh, we're on number eight, number nine. Last one was fifty grand over asking price, guaranteed appraisal, and we weren't the prettiest girl at the dance, nor were we the second prettiest girl at the dance. We didn't get a, a backup offer. And it's like it's frustrating. It's horrible for these buyers. And it's a lot to go through. And then to have a seller say, We are blatantly gonna leverage everyone against everybody else and we're gonna wait two and a half weeks before we do anything. Well, Thankfully, you know, I approve of the exclusion where you can put something on the market if your seller isn't absolutely ready. I appreciate the RMLS exclusion. You can start getting the motor running on a little bit of advertising, and then when they're ready, you can make it live in RMLS. But if they make it live on the 11th and say we're not going to look at offers till the 29th, they should have just waited until the 25th to put it on the market and fall within that four or five day window. Yeah, I agree, Joe. I fully agree. This seller is just posturing and possibly the listing agent along with them. I mean, they're in cahoots. It could be just the seller. It could be just the listing agent. But regardless, together, somehow, they're just posturing to take advantage of this market and really flaunt in the face of buyers how brutal it is. And it's kind of sickening, in my opinion. And I think it will backfire on them. I truly do. I think buyers probably will steer clear of it. And again, kudos to the Masters Group. I loved the threads. It was very much in sync along these lines that this was not a good strategy. And it was kind of disgusting, to be honest. In fact, there was a lot of like really question mark, question mark, question mark, or way too long with like way having like four A's in it. And there was a lot of comments, and I agree with this, where buyers, okay, I like that house, I'm going to make an offer, but I'm going to keep looking, 
And is that offer really a valid offer at that point? If I make an offer on the 13th, if I'm a buyer, I make an offer on the 13th, and then I run over and start looking, and that offer is still sitting there, is that a real offer? I mean, how many of those people are going to find another house, and the seller is going to be all smug, hey, I've got all these offers, but how many of them are really valid at that point when the 29th comes along? So that part was pretty ludicrous in my opinion and probably going to backfire on them. You know, I've done this a couple times. I don't like to put all offers will be reviewed on any date, even if it's four or five days. And this is just my opinion. I'm not faulting anyone that does because I worry that it's going to scare people off. Even if I take it live on the 11th, and let me clarify this, when I'm first hitting the market, Sometimes you think you have that really hot property that is going to be in high demand. You put those little words in there, all offers will be reviewed you know, in three, four days, and all of a sudden, it's quiet. And I've had this happen once or twice, and so I stopped doing that. Now, not to say that if I do take a property live, and all of a sudden I do get four or five offers, we may go back in and throw something in there. Because at this point, we're safe. We know we have those four or five offers. It's a really delicate dynamic and it's a really slippery slope. When you're listing a property, you want multiple offers. We all know that. But if you talk too much about it to potential agents that are calling you, you can scare them away and you can scare their buyers away. And then all of a sudden you have no offers. Along those lines, I'll also say, and this is kind of along what Joe said, and this will be the last thing I say about this, is when you start to get offers, there's kind of a crescendo where enough's enough. You hit a point where the first buyer there, let's say you go live in Joe's scenario, you go live on Friday and your first buyer comes Friday night and gives you an offer. Okay. There's going to come a point. You're going to string that person along so long that they're going to leave. And in my opinion, that could be three, four days because at that point you're kind of thumbing your nose at them. Come day four, I would say you're kind of thumbing their nose at them saying, Hey, thanks for the offer, but we want something else. So you just have to be really careful with this. I think there's a brief window where you try to get as many offers as you can. And let's be real, people. If you have five offers or 50 offers, are you really that much better off with the 45 extra ones? I mean, aren't they all just at that point the same? Do you really think by having a sixth offer or a 17th offer that you're going to somehow go 200 grand over ask? I mean, the house is still the house. It's the same house. So I think that becomes repetitive at some point as well. So... I agree. You know what this reminds me of? Reminds me, and I'm going to say back in the day, as in just post the crash of real estate, right? So we're talking 2009, 2010. And what this reminds me of is back in the day, we did a lot of REO buying for the rehab game. And, you know, REO agents are, well, I won't say everyone, but the vast majority were god awful terrible in terms of customer service, responding to anything, letting you know what was going on. But eventually they started putting stuff in like asset manager will review offers at the end of the month or something like that, right? And then they don't even let you know that they got your offer. Very similar to what's happening here. The only advantage that the REO agents had is number one is they were controlling inventory that was in high demand for a slightly different type of buyer, the investor buyer who's trying to make money with the property and not necessarily live there. So we as investors would deal with all of their BS because we're trying to make money. I think the retail buyer is just wired differently. You know, they're going to get upset. They're going to have more emotions and, you know, you guys don't have to deal with that. And most of the time they're probably going to go somewhere else or they're going to get fed up with it. So I think that number one, it's, it's not a great strategy for a retail type property if you're trying to sell it to a retail buyer. 
if you're trying to sell it as a redevelopment deal or something like that, okay, I understand. But you know, you also have to take into account what kind of price you're putting on it. If you're putting on full market value, putting it out there for three weeks and expecting to get a bunch of offers and review them in three weeks, kind of a stupid strategy. If you're pricing it a hundred grand under market and it's a redevelopment deal and you want to make sure every flipper and redeveloper in town gets a chance to look at it and submit an offer, okay, I get what you're trying to do. But to do that in the retail world, I think it's just bad taste. It's bad business. And really, I think it's going to backfire on you for a lot of the reasons like you talked about, Steve. Everybody's favorite strategy is listed Friday. Oh, my sellers are at the beach for the weekend, so we're going to review Monday, right? I mean, that, everybody plays that game. That's fine. That's the way you should in this market. It's the smart thing to do because you want to make sure enough retail buyers get through the house that you get a, an accurate representation of what the market will bear for the property come Monday or Tuesday, whenever it is that you're going to review them like, like you and Joe said. So I think that's the best way to do it. After that, it does get redundant, Steve. I mean, what's if you got 17 offers or seven offers, at the end of the day, you're looking for offers that have best terms, best price, easiest to work with. And you know, within a, a subset of seven offers, you can find that. You don't need 17 to find that, I, I really believe. And so, yeah, I, I'll agree. You know, that, they still haven't looked at offers, right? <laughs> Talking about something that posted a couple of weeks ago. They're still not even looking at offers. So I think there's a place for it. I think the retail property is not the place. And even with the redevelopment deal, I think that long is just a little ridiculous. So, you know, I think they probably need to change the way they're, they're listing properties. And, you know, like you said, Steve, it might be the seller who the agent doesn't have enough balls to tell them that that's not the way that we should do things. Or maybe it's a combination of the two. And that's the harebrained idea they both came up with because the market's hot. So let's take advantage of this. And I think it's just trying to take too much advantage of the market. And I do think that it'll backfire. And really, their listing is going to get stale. And by the time they actually call somebody and say, guess what? You're the winner. They're going to be like, oh, really? Okay, well. I kind of moved on to this other chick, you know, so yeah, yeah. That, that's going to be kind of the response I think they get. They were just so excited that it's a leap year. They were looking at the calendar. They're like, we got to do that day. We got to do the 29th of February. It's, it's not a common day. Right. <laughs> so we have one more to move on. Did you have anything else on that one, Joe? No, I, think, I think we talked about that one in full. Yeah, we, we talked through it. Something you said, though, Steve, that I thought was brilliant is you want to position yourself not to turn people away. And we've all seen these listings where it's listed on Monday and they say all offers presented on Friday and, and you look in the RMLS computer and it's on the market for two months. You know, mm -hmm. and they come out swinging with all offers are presented Friday and, and it goes on for two months. When I have an offer, that's when I set a date. And I say all offers will be presented on this date. Your deadline to get it to me is 3 o'clock. When people ask me how many offers I have, my answer is always the same. I have at least one, and that is it. I'm not going to give them a count. I have six, I have eight, I'm holding 12. I don't want to turn people away. And sometimes mm -hmm. when you say, gee, we have 10 offers, you think, wow, they're going to come in with a super offer because they know they have a lot to beat. But more often than not, they say, ah, forget it. I'm mm -hmm. out. So, yeah, I think that's a great tip, Joe. That really is. It's always at least one. And along those lines, we had an interesting situation here a while back where we went live on, I think, Friday, and we got an offer on Saturday with it being reviewed on Sunday at noon. My listing agent had another showing, and they called and said, hey, we're writing another offer. She even showed me the text. She even had in writing a text saying, yeah, I sent the offer out for the DocuSign. This is the second offer. So at that point... Her and I talked, and I said, yeah, I think you're okay to go back to the first people and just say, give us highest and best. We do have another offer. She did, and 
the first people went away. They said, nope, you had our offer. We're not playing this game. Come Sunday morning, she did not get a second offer. Oh, This is when she showed me the text. She said, after thinking about it, they had sent out the DocuSign, but the son talked to it. It was an older couple, and they talked to him. And he said, no, we want you to be in this part of town. So here, all of a sudden, we had no offers. And this was a timely situation because she had found a place that she really wanted, our seller. It was a really frustrating situation. So we as a team even made another decision that day. We said, moving forward, let's not go to the first party and tell them we have another offer until we have it in writing, physically have it when possible. I mean, if timelines don't allow for that for some reason, but we thought we were pretty safe on that one and and we got burned. So it just goes to show the game isn't just run around and flaunt in everybody's face. Oh, we're getting a bunch of offers. That will backfire on you. You have to be really delicate with that. And that's that's a testament to that. So we have one more we want to talk about, guys. This one resonated pretty well with me, me and Tucker being former mortgage guys. It was posted on, and it got a lot of comments as well. It was posted on February 10th, and I'll read it to you. It said, okay, so I had a buyer, and then she tells me she ha- found a FISBO, and her mortgage person gave her all the paperwork she needed to give the seller an offer. The mortgage person said she does this sometimes when her buyers have FISBO sellers. So my question is, can mortgage people provide paperwork to FISBOs? Now, I will say on this one, I think the thread went a little off the rails. A couple things. First of all, if this mortgage person works with the broker that posted this, meaning the broker that posted this referred the mortgage person, shame on them for not making the first phone call to her. That's just 101. The second the buyer says, hey, I found a FISBO, I get he still wants the business, or she, the mortgage loan officer, I get they still want the business, I get that part, that's okay, but they should have a quiet phone call, even if it's like, look, please don't throw me under the bus to the buyer, but here's what's going on, I respect your business, I appreciate the referral, I wanted you to be aware, what would you like to do? Because here's the reality, that buyer is just one buyer, that realtor is many, many future buyers, so be smart about that, okay, that said... There is nothing wrong in my opinion, and if there's a lawyer out there that's going to correct me, so be it, and I will take the correction. But a Stevens and Ness form can be found online. They can be saved in a drawer. If a buyer says, hey, I found a FISBO, I don't see anything wrong with a loan officer handing that form. Now, any guidance is where you start to go off the rails there, but just going, hey, here's a form that you can write it up on and consult with an attorney if you have questions. I don't know that that's problematic in my opinion. What do you guys think? Joe? Well, you know, there wasn't enough information in this topic. The person said a buyer wants to represent themselves, and a lender gave them the form. And kind of like our first topic with the journalist from the Oregonian started throwing darts at the people, Masters kind of jumped on board with this one saying – it's unethical, and how can this lender be furnishing a form, and they can't practice real estate, and they just took it you know, down a dirt road. The fact of the matter is we don't even know if this buyer was ever referred to this lender or was working with anyone. He just said, hey, I'm an educated person. I want to represent myself. Usually there's a slant so they can save money that otherwise would have been paid to a selling agent. And he's talking to his lender. By the way, this buyer is the lender's client. You know, he wants to make sure that this guy buys something. And he says, I'm representing myself. I found a house. 
you know those forms you print on? Do you have access to them? Do you have a Stevens Nest form? And the guy's like, yeah, here you go. Knock yourself out. It could have even been a link that he emailed to him. I mean, if you Google Stevens be. Nest, there's, there's a link, links. Order them so, here. Yeah. 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 And to shout foul play with limited information where this guy did nothing but gave his client what he wanted. Do you have any of these forms? Well, yes, I do. Or, or here I know where you can buy them yourself. Here you go. And he's marching down the path. And I know as a, as a listing agent, we don't really like people representing themselves because it isn't really cut and dry. What people do is they come up and say, hey, I want you to show me the house and I want you to write the offer for me and supply everything, but I don't want you to get a commission because I'm representing myself. Nothing changes between double-ending a property and that buyer in that scenario other than they utter the words, I want to represent myself, i.e. lowball the offer, the amount of what the selling agent compensation would be. And you know that's not how I roll. If someone represents themselves, I say, great. Send me your offer, you know, send me your offer on your form and I want a pre-approval letter, your promissory note, and I can't advise you onto any of the critical guidelines or timelines or anything. I mean, you are your own, whether you have a, a selling agent representing you or you're representing yourself, it's on you, baby. <laughs> That's worth the BAC commission that, that you are hoping to save. And I don't really think it's worth it. You know, there's a few things you don't screw around with, and that's your largest material assets in what you purchase, and you don't mess around with your health. And to go into this thing thinking you're smarter than the rest of the world to represent yourself, I know that some are truly competent, but I know that some truly aren't. So you should think twice before doing it. But back to the point, the lender didn't do anything wrong, and I thought a lot of people screaming from the mountaintop was uncalled for. Yeah, I agree with both of you, and I think you both make really good points. And uh, just to kind of add to that a little bit before we uh, wrap up this episode, we use a Stevens Nest form on all of our purchases directly from homeowners, and I represent TTM. TTM purchases generally directly from homeowners. That's what we do, but we're professional property buyers. That's what we do. We're not you know, Joe Blow looking to buy his first house and wants to represent himself which is a big difference. you know. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of people don't realize with the whole FISBO thing, 95, I would say, percent of the time or more, FISBOs will courtesy to broker, which means that if you find one, you can have your broker represent you, and it's not going to cost you more money. In fact, it'll probably help you because they can guide you through a lot of the process. And in the end, they're probably going to have to do a lot of the seller's job for them, too, letting them know how this process really works because most of the time they don't have a clue either, but they want to save a few bucks, so they try and do a FISBO. Most of those FISBOs usually end up as a listing at some point because they realize that there's more to it than just putting a sign in their yard and they just get burned out on it. But the bottom line is, is that somebody offering to buy real estate, you know, retail buyer offering on a retail product, it doesn't hurt to have their agent in the middle because most of the time those FISBO sellers will courtesy to broker, which means they'll basically pay your agent whether they're in the middle or not to help you along. So I think people need to realize that and kind of get over the whole, well, I'm going to get a better deal. Not necessarily the case. The other thing, too, is that, you know, yeah, I, I don't think there's enough information in the post to really be able to tell, but I don't think the lender did anything wrong unless, of course, the lender was referred the client by the agent. And in, like Steve said, 
you can't not help them, but the first call should be to the agent and say, hey, they're looking at this FISBO. I don't think they understand how it works. Maybe you should have a conversation with them and let them know that most FISBOs do courtesy to brokers and they can help them along and it's not going to cost them any more money. Great. Let's have them involved, you know, and I think that would have solved the problem. Now, if the loan officer had nothing to do with the agent and the, the buyer found each of them on their own, yeah, there's nothing that, that the loan officer did wrong. They said they found a FISBO. They want to close a loan just like everybody else wants to close a real estate sale. Here's a Stevens Ness form. People use it all the time. There's been 10,000 attorneys that have poured over that form. That's why it's a standardized form. So here you go. It's simple. It's easy. Good luck. Let me know when you have an accepted offer so I can get the loan closed. So Exactly. And Tucker, I reread the post again. And it leads me to believe, the semantics of it leads me to believe it was not her lender. It says, okay, so I had a buyer. Then she tells me she found a FISBO and her mortgage person. Gotcha. Her mortgage person. So again, she could have just mistyped that and maybe she didn't mean this, but it sounds to me as if they had their own mortgage person and that person has no obligation to her. In fact, there's a strong argument here. This is why it's so important, real estate brokers, to refer your lender. They are your team. They will be there with you to help keep an eye on things and be your eyes and ears when something like this happens. Sell your preferred lenders and you will alleviate some of these problems. If somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I have my own lender, you know, we all have those clients and we have to work with them to some extent, but I always give them a run for it. You know, like, well, I know you buy a house every seven or eight years, like the typical American. I help eight or nine buyers a month buy houses with, with our preferred lender. So I think you can leverage our relationship. This person is, is going to go above and beyond because of that. And when you do that and you're successful in getting your preferred lender in there, I think you will avoid these situations. I think they will help you when this situation arises. And I'm inclined to believe that is not what was going on here. I think that was the buyer's lender. And I'm fully on board with you guys. I mean, there was a lot of talk here in this thread about turn them in, turn them in, you know, their license should be in trouble. No, <laughs> I don't think it's that way, guys. I think yeah. I think this buyer had a lender. The buyer found a FISBO, called the lender up. The lender goes, hey, here's a link to Stevenson S forms or whatever the case was, and so be it. And so there you have it. Good, good. All right. Well, I think we talked about three great topics this week, gentlemen, and I think we uh, fully explored all of them, and hopefully everybody listening enjoyed our perspectives on them. Steve or Joe, any parting words of advice from YouTube powerhouses before we close down shop for this week? I am waiting by my Skype and notebook for a month of our next episode. <laughs> I can't wait. Waiting by the computer. <laughs> we love it. Thanks for joining us again, Joe. It's my favorite segment, so always good to have you on. Thank you. Glad yeah, thanks, Joe. Glad to be here. Always a fun episode, and uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed it as well. So we're going to wrap up this episode, guys. We'll be back next week with another exciting show. So we'll see you guys then. Thanks again for listening to our show. And make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.